last year, last year on my birthday, I woke up, woke up and did the normal routine and got my daughter ready. I had to drive my daughter, Caitlin, uh, to preschool that morning. So it was my birthday. We got up. We got into the car. April 28th, by the way, in case you're wondering. Give you a chance to jot that down somewhere. A reminder in your phone. But uh, only like 50 shopping days left, just so you know. But, uh, but we got up, we got into the car, and just me and, and Caitlin, and we started driving. And, and uh, we live in, in Melrose, and we were headed to, she goes to preschool in Burlington. And so I usually take back roads, because if I do the cloverleaf on 95 and 93, I lose my mind in the morning. So we use back roads, and we go through Stoneham. And, uh, and we're going through Stoneham, and there's one place where we come to a stop sign, and it's always backed up. You know how this goes in the morning, right? It's always backed up. And so there's a street with houses on either side, and we're just backed up, and it's a normal morning. And my daughter says to me, she looks, uh, she says, why does that house still have Santa on it? And I said, I'm not sure, Caitlin. It is April. Uh, I'm not sure why that house still has Santa on it. And the house was off to the left, so we were looking at Santa, and there was this um, uh, ladder that came out of the attic, and on the ladder was this image of Santa climbing up onto the roof. And so we were talking about the fact that it was April 28th, and this house still had Santa on it. And I was telling her, I think they're really, you know, proactive and getting a big head start on next year. And, and so we're looking at that, and while we're talking about that, all of a sudden my car got rocked from the right side. And I turned and I looked, and all I saw was the rear end of an SUV right in the window and in the passenger door of my car. And a lady had started to back out of her driveway and uh, just backed right into me. And we were looking to the left at Santa on the house there, and so I didn't notice that someone was backing out of their driveway. There were cars stopped in front of me, and there were cars stopped behind me, so I was a little confused as to how uh, she thought that she could back up out of her driveway. So we pulled off to the side, and she pulled back in her driveway, and I, and I got out, and And what happened was, she thought the person behind me had left her space. And because she was in an SUV, and because her driveway was elevated higher than the road, she could not see my car. In fact, my car was located directly in what we know from our driver's ed classes as the blind spot of her vehicle. Now, her SUV was new enough to have a backup camera. I mentioned that to her. She says she chooses not to use it. I would suggest in the future she does. But the problem was, the problem was is that, uh, is that my car was sitting right in her blind spot. So she could see the car in her mirror in front of me. She, she could see the car behind me, and she thought that there was a gap where there wasn't. And we know this, right, from driving. We know it from driver's ed. It's one of the first things you learn in driver's ed, that you should always pay attention to what is in your blind spot. In fact, you learn in driver's ed that what is in, what you cannot see in that blind spot is usually more dangerous to you than what you can see on the road around you. Often, if you're going to get yourself in trouble, it's what's in your blind spot that's going to get you in trouble. If you don't pay attention to it, if you don't watch it, if you don't uh, make sure that you check it, uh, you could get yourself into trouble. In fact, I remember my instructor telling us that when we merge onto the interstate, we should check our blind spot no less than three times in the time that we're going up the ramp and merging onto the interstate. Now, I've since revised that down personally to maybe one time or in, you know, true Bostonian fashion, we just feel like it's the other person's job to get out of our way. But the real rule is at least three times, right? You should check your blind spot and see 
and see what is there. Potentially, potentially what we cannot see in our blind spot is more dangerous to us than what we can see around us. And it's not just like that when we're in our cars. It's like that in other situations in life too. In fact, when you watch a, when you watch a, a football game, right, and you see the football players out on the field, one of the highest paid players on the field is the player, the lineman who protects the quarterback's backside. Because when a quarterback drops back to pass, they have what's called a blind side behind them. And so one of the highest paid players on the field, usually their names don't get mentioned that much, but they're still one of the highest paid players on the field, is the, is the lineman that blocks for that quarterback's backside. In fact, you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a big movie, and a, an Oscar-winning movie and a book that came out, and the title of that book and movie was, anyone remember? Blindside, right? Because even for a quarterback out on the football field, what he cannot see is more dangerous to him often than what he can see in front of him. And so it's important that he's protected. You know, there's blind spots when we drive. There's blind spots maybe in sports. But we have blind spots in our personal lives too, don't we? Those things that other persons, people see in us that maybe we're oblivious to or we cannot see. The things that we can see in other people that they cannot see. The idiosyncrasies, the personality traits. All of those little things... Um, all the little habits I have when I get up here and preach that I don't even know about, all those little things that exist in our our blind spots uh, that we're not really aware of. And it can be true, can't it, in our personal life that the things that exist in our blind spot can potentially be more uh, devastating to us or, or more of a danger to us than the things that we can see. In fact, those little, those traits, those habits, those idiosyncrasies, the way that we respond to people that we're not even aware of, those things can, can halt a career, they can, they can uh, hurt a marriage, they can break up friendships, they can do all sorts of things, they can just uh, make people not want to be around us sometimes, all those little things that we don't see inside of us, uh, those things exist and they sit there and those things that we can't see, just like when we're driving, just like for the quarterback, those things that we can't see can be more devastating to us than the things that we can see. And the question that I want us to think about this morning together, we're going to be in Psalm 51 in just a minute. We've been walking through the Psalms together over the last few weeks. But the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning is just like we have blind spots when we drive and just like we have blind spots in our personal lives, those things that other people can see that we can't, Do we have blind spots in our spiritual lives as well? Do we have things in our relationship with God? Do we have blind spots in our spiritual lives? And in those blind spots, do things sit that are more dangerous to us spiritually than the things that we can see? I think that for all of us, not only do we have blind spots when we drive and blind spots in our personal life, but we have blind spots in our spiritual life that unless we pay attention to them, what lives in those blind spots in our spiritual lives will do more damage to us in our relationship with God than the things that we can see and we are aware of in our life. And so the question that I want us to ask, ask this morning is, is, answer this morning, is how do we know about those things? How do we come to find out about those things? And then once we find out about them, what do we do about them? So they are not devastating to us in our relationship with God. We always need a third party, don't we, to reveal those things that we can't see. 
We always need something external to come in and help us to see what exists in our blind spots. So in your car, you have mirrors. And, and if, you're, if you have a newer car, then you probably have a backup camera. Maybe your car beeps when you move and it gets too close to something. If you're really fancy, you have one of those cars where in the side view mirror, something lights up when someone's next to you on the interstate so that you know that you can't change lanes. You don't even have to look anymore. That, thing, that sensor lights up and you know that someone is next to you. And they, if you're like me, the most effective way is just to have your wife in the car with you. She'll let you know if something's there. Sometimes I say to Lori, I say, do you think that when you're not in the car, I'm just wildly bashing off everything, guardrail to guardrail, just smashing other cars? That's a different, that's a different sermon. But, but we, we have all these different external things, right, to help us, uh, help us know what's in our blind spot. And it's the same thing, it's the same thing. Uh, in, our, in our personal life, right? It's not until a, a friend or a, a spouse or a family member or, or an employer or someone comes to us and says, listen, here's some things I think you need to work on that all of a sudden what's in our blind spot and we really didn't see before becomes to light and all of a sudden we see it. You know, in our, um, if you're new to Mount Hope, we're one church with two campuses and in our Burlington campus last week we got brand new lights put in the sanctuary. And it had been a long time since we had new lights in the sanctuary. And the old lights were, were very dim, and it was difficult to see things. And so we put in these brand new lights, and we turned on the lights. And do you know what the first thing we noticed when we flipped the lights on is? What's that? Someone said it. The carpet. The carpet was filthy. And we could never see it before. We flipped on the lights, and rather than saying, wow, these lights look great, we went, oh my goodness, this carpet's horrendous. And that's how it is, right? We have blind spots. We can't see things in our lives, in our spiritual life. And we need something from the outside to come in and shine light on it so that it become, we become aware of it. And so spiritually, how do we do that? And then once we're aware of it, well, what in the world are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to respond? This morning we're going to look at a time in David's life where a huge blind spot, spiritual blind spot in his life was revealed by somebody else. And we're going to look at how David responded. The response is in Psalm 51, and we're going to get there in a moment. But before we can get to Psalm 51, we have to talk about what happened in David's life to lead up to Psalm 51. What was the blind spot that was revealed? Well, you maybe have heard of David before, even if you haven't spent much time in church. David, he's David and Goliath. David, you know that guy, king over Israel. And so this is that David, a pretty famous guy, well-known guy from the Bible. And there was a time when David was king over Israel. And all this takes place in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12, if you want to look it up sometime. David has sent all of his men out into battle at this point. And so as the king, he's hanging out in Jerusalem, waiting to hear word from the battlefield. But all the young men who are of the right age and all trained warriors, they are off into battle. And while they're off into battle, David, he is uh, taking a walk on the roof of his palace. He is observing um, Jerusalem, the city, and he happens to notice that there is, uh, you can see from his roof, a beautiful woman who is bathing. And so David, he takes a look, and he says to his people, he says, who is that woman? And they say, well, that's Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
And David knows Uriah is off to battle. And so David, he gets an idea. It's not a great idea. But he gets an idea and he, call, and he has them bring Bathsheba to his palace. And David ends up having an affair, committing adultery with Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba goes home and then she calls David up, calls him up, call, gets in contact with David a little while later, Facebooks him, <laughs> and says, David, uh, I'm pregnant. So now David has done something wrong. He knows it's wrong, but now there's evidence that he's done something wrong. And so David comes up with another idea. He calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back from battle and give him an update on what's going on in the battle. And so Uriah comes back and he tells King David, you know, what's going on in the battle. And David says, Uriah, don't rush back to battle. Go home. Be with your wife. Spend some time with your family while you're here in the city of Jerusalem. Much to David's chagrin, Uriah, being the good soldier that he is, sleeps right outside the palace and refuses to go back to his house. And David says, why wouldn't you go home? And Uriah says, I cannot go home and be with my family while all my brothers are out in the field fighting in a battle. I won't do it. So David says, I'll tell you what, Uriah, why don't you stay one more day? And tonight... Just go home and enjoy it. Eat dinner, hang out with your wife, and, and just enjoy the evening. And once again, Uriah refuses to go home. He won't go home and be with his wife while his fellow soldiers are out in battle. So now David has to figure something else out because there's no other way to cover up what he's done and the fact that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child so he writes an order to his commander, and, and a sealed order, and gives it to Uriah and says, when you get back to battle, give this order to your commander. And so Uriah carries this piece of paper out to battle, gives it to the commander. The commander opens it up, and what it says is, put Uriah in the front lines, in the fiercest place of fighting. Tell every other soldier that you're going to give a signal, and then they should retreat on the signal, but don't tell Uriah. So Uriah goes into the fiercest battle. He rushes into battle with the other men. A signal is given by the commander. Every other man falls away, and Uriah is killed in battle as he's left alone by himself. David marries Bathsheba, takes her into the palace, and just tries to go on with life. Tries to go on as if nothing's happened. He's made a bad decision, but made a couple of bad decisions, terrible decisions. He's an adulterer and a murderer. But he's done the best that he knows how to move on. Well, it turns out that there's this guy named Nathan, who's a prophet. God speaks to Nathan, and Nathan speaks to people on behalf of God. And God speaks to Nathan and says, you need to go talk to King David. So the prophet Nathan, he walks into King David's uh, throne room there, and he says, David, I have a problem. We have a situation. I need to know how you would deal with this situation. And David says, well, what's the situation? He says, here's the deal. There's a very poor man, and all that he's ever had is this one lamb that his family has raised. In fact, they love it like it's their own, like a child. They love this, this animal like it's, like it's a daughter. And they've cared for it. They've raised it. It's been a part of the family. And there's a rich man. There's a, there's a rich man uh, who has plenty of things. And what happened is, the rich man had guests come over, and he has herds and herds of sheep and cattle. The rich man had guests come over, and instead of feeding his guests from his own flocks, he took 
the one lamb this poor man has had for years, slaughtered it and fed his own guests. What should we do with the rich man? And David, the Bible says, gets angry. And he says that man should lose his life for what he's done. That man should be punished severely for taking from the poor man and using that uh, on his own guests. And Nathan turns to him and he says, David, you are the man. You're the man. You took Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. You're the king. You have anything you want. And you took another man's wife, had her as your own, and then you killed him in battle. And God says to you, you are the man, and you have forgotten what I have done for you. I took you from a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. I made you a great warrior. I led you into battle. And now I've made you king. And you have gone and you have done this thing. And not only has it been a sin, the Lord says to David, not only has it been a sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah, but even more than that, David, you have sinned against me as your God and your king, the one who gave you everything, the one who took you out of the pasture where you were watching sheep and put you up in the throne. You have sinned against me. And all of a sudden, the light goes on in David's life. This giant spiritual blind spot that he had where he thought he could get away with this whole deal. All of a sudden, Nathan has come in and reminded him, not only has God seen the whole thing, but God is angry about it. And so then the question becomes, what is David going to do? What is he going to do? And the question for us becomes, what are we going to do? Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. All of us, whether we want to admit it or not, all of us have violated God's law in some way. The Bible calls it sin. All of us have sinned. And we may say, well, I've never, you know, murdered anybody or committed adultery. It may be so, but all of us have broken God's law at some point. And usually what happens is, is that guilt and that sin that we have, it sits in this spiritual blind spot that we have. And we kind of forget about it and we kind of move on and we try to be the best people that we know how to be. But when all that stuff gets revealed in our lives, the question that we have to ask is, what are we going to do about it? You know, God reveals that kind of stuff to us in a number of ways. If we open up his Bible and we read it, he'll reveal to us where we've fallen short. If we listen to his spirit, his spirit will reveal to us where we've fallen short. Sometimes we'll listen to a sermon or, or we'll listen to a, a leader and, and we'll realize where we've fallen short. Other times God will bring in our family members or bring in a trusted uh, brother or sister in Christ to speak to us and reveal those places where we have fallen short. All of us have them. The question is, when those things get brought into the light and revealed, what are we going to do about it? We can learn a lot by looking at how David dealt with his blind spot. I think that there's two reactions that we default to, and surely our culture that we live in defaults to these two reactions. When our culture, the world, is faced with the fact that we are choosing to live a a different way than what God asks us to, and, and that's largely the world that we live in, especially in this part of the country, where we say we're going to do our own thing. We know what God says, but we're not really interested in it, so we're going to do our own thing. What do we do when we have this gap between how we're living and how God has called us to live? What do we do with that gap when it's brought to light? 
Well, there's two reactions that I think our culture largely has, two reactions that David could have had. The first one is to just dismiss it. David could have done this. David could have said, it's really not that big of a deal. Nathan, I appreciate you coming, but I'm the king, and if you say one more thing, it'll be the end of your life as well. We could have dismissed the whole thing. And definitely this is something that we, that we do in our lives and in our culture. When we, when we realize that, that what we are doing, how we're living is different than how God has asked us to live. We look in the Bible, we hear a, a preacher, we, however it is, and we see the difference between what God has asked us to do and what we do, many of us will just dismiss it. It's really not that big of a deal. Times have changed. The world's a more modern place now. Surely God understands how we've moved on. And David easily could have dismissed it as well. In fact, I came across a couple of of prayers that I think illustrate how our culture is different today. There's an old book called the Book of Common Prayer, and it has a number of written prayers that they would suggest for worship. And one of their prayers of confession, it goes like this. I'll read it to you. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. Spare us, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent. According to your promises declared unto men in Jesus Christ, Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your name. Amen. Now that's how we might have prayed in the past. But in our dismissive culture, where we don't really take seriously many times what's in our blind spot, how we live differently from the way that God has called us to live, this is how we might pray that same prayer. Benevolent and easygoing parent. We have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect, and we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. Those are the kind of prayers we might pray today. We're very dismissive. We can be very dismissive of the gap between how God calls us to live and how we end up living. The other thing that David could have done, and I think many of us end up doing, is to get defensive. This is my default. When someone comes and, and, and points out something in my own life that I need to work on, even if I know that it's something I need to work on, when someone brings light into that blind spot, the, my gut reaction, the first place I would go is to be defensive. Well, you don't understand. Well, you don't, you don't really know. I, I'm working on it. I'm not, supposed, I'm not trying to be like that. I think you took it the wrong way. All of those things that we might jump to, David could have been defensive. David could have been defensive when Nathan told him this. And often when we get defensive with God, we, do, we play the comparison game. We say, God, I know I'm not perfect, 
but I don't know if you've been paying attention to the people down the row in the chairs from me in church on Sunday morning, or I don't know if you've been paying attention to the people that live next to me. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the people I work with, but if you compare my life to theirs, my life is way better. And often when we get defensive, we start to play this this comparison game where we say, rather than deal with what God is asking us to deal with, we get defensive and we say, God, all right, I'm not perfect, but these people really aren't perfect. And at least I'm not like them. And David easily could have been dismissive. He easily could have been defensive. But this is what David does. Faced with this blind spot, Faced with this place where it becomes so clear to him that he has not done what God wanted him to do and sinned against God, this is what David does. Psalm 51. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. and Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. I think in our culture there's this feeling that there's no greater sin, there's no greater sin in our culture and in our world than to not be, not do what you personally believe to be right. To not do what you personally think is good and true. That the greatest sin that you could really commit is uh, to take what you believe to be true and to go against that. David could have easily taken that route. He could have said, listen, I understand what God says, but I, the worst thing would be for me to, to violate my, myself and my own good conscience by admitting anything. But instead of being dismissive or defensive, David comes before God and is completely and utterly and totally defenseless. He comes before God and he repents of his sin. He comes before God and repenting is, is, 
is expressing true sorrow and the desire never to do it again. He comes before God and he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God, I have violated your law at the very basis of it. God, I deserve nothing. I was born in sin and I am a sinner. And David comes before God and he truly repents. And the second thing that he does is he asks God to restore him and he recognizes when he comes before God, God, there is no possible way that I can put all the pieces back together myself. There is no possible way, based upon what I have done, that I can work to restore the relationship between you and me. There is nothing that I can do under my own power, nothing I can do under my own strength, and rather than be dismissive of it, rather than be defensive of it, David comes before God and he is totally and utterly defenseless and says, God, I have sinned against you in the worst way. There's no excuse for it. And if anything is going to be fixed, if anything is going to be restored between me and you, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to to be whole again, God, it is the work that you have to do in me. There is nothing that I can do to make it happen. David comes before God and he is totally and utterly defenseless. And for any of us that desire to have a true and real relationship with God, we must have those times in our lives where the things that sit in the blind spots, the spiritual blind spots of our lives, the pride, the greed, the anger, the the hatred, the sin, the, the just unwillingness to do what it is that God wants us to do, all of those things that sit in our spiritual blind spots, our, our lackadaisical attitude, our, the malaise with which we go about our spiritual life, all of those things that, that sit in that blind spot, when they are revealed, all of us, if we are to have a right relationship with God, to be... Uh, to find our salvation in him, have to have these moments where instead of being dismissive of those things, instead of being defensive of those things, that we come before God and we say, God, I am utterly and truly sorry. In fact, I realize that I have violated not just the people around me, but God, I have violated my relationship with you. And if it's ever to be fixed again, then I need you to come. And I need you to restore me. Sometimes it's the religious people that have the biggest spiritual blind spots. Sometimes it's the people that show up every Sunday. Sometimes it's the people that do all the volunteering and all the leading that have the biggest spiritual blind spots. And I think some of the danger is that we could come in on a Sunday morning and say, listen, I understand I have spiritual blind spots. I've been in church a long time. I repented once before, and not realize how they have grown again and all that has been put in there over the years and all the things that we're not paying attention to. Jesus, when he was on this earth, and it's in Luke chapter 18, there was a moment that he was in the temple, and there was a religious leader who was, who was up there praying, and there was, there was a tax collector who was on the other side of the temple. And the religious leader got up, And he started to pray in front of everybody. And he said, God, I thank you for the many ways you've blessed me. And I thank you that I'm able to give so much money to the temple. And I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner that's sitting over here. Thank you that you have made me to be better than him. 
And Jesus watched the Pharisee give that prayer. And then he turned with his disciples and they watched the tax collector fall on his knees before God and say, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And Jesus says to his disciples, you know, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And Jesus looks at this as well and says, if you want to have a right relationship with God, don't be dismissive of blind spots spiritually. Don't be defensive of them. Come before God defenseless. Repent of your sin. Ask him to forgive you and he will do it. Dr. Leon Bender, Dr. Leon Bender uh, was a, a doctor at a, at a hospital, and there's two brothers that write books that I like to read. Chip and Dan Heath are their names. They write, I've told you before, I love the airport books, all those leadership books they sell at the airport. I love those books. Dan and Chip Heath, they write the airport books, and so they've written books like Made to Stick, and then this one article that they had online, they told the story of Dr. Leon Bender. And Dr. Bender worked at a hospital, and what he did was he took a vacation. He went on a cruise Uh, in the South Pacific. And while he was on the cruise, he noticed that the workers on the cruise were more diligent about washing their hands than the doctors back at his hospital. And it bothered him because uh, the the regulations state that you have to be at 90% hand-washing effectiveness uh, in the hospitals to pass some regulations. I don't know what 90% effectiveness means, but that's what they had to be at. And he said his hospital was routinely at 80% or under. Meaning all these doctors and all these nurses and all these administrators that were supposed to be washing their hands were only doing it 80% of the time. And so there was this 20% gap uh, where he knew patients were getting sick of things that could have been preventable. And it bothered him when he went on this cruise that these cruise workers were more diligent about washing their hands and keeping the boat clean than the doctors and nurses that he worked with in the hospital. So when he got back to his hospital, he decided one day, one day he had a bunch of Petri dishes laid out. Before anybody could could leave, they all had to press their hands into the Petri dishes. And those went back to the lab, and the bacteria was allowed to grow. And then one day he brought out the images. In fact, he made the worst image, the screensaver, on the network for all the computers in the hospital. And he said, these are what our hands look like. Covered in bacteria. These are the hands we were using to heal people. These are the hands we're using to do procedures with. These are the hands that we're using uh, to comfort and touch patients with who are sick. These are what your hands look like. And you know, Dr. Leon said, Dr. Butler, Bender said, once the doctors and nurses and administrators saw the bacteria on their hands, their hospital from that day forward was at 100% effectiveness with hand washing. And isn't it true that until the bacteria in our lives is revealed, we can just go on living like it doesn't exist? We can go on pretending that it's not there. We can talk ourselves out of it. If a doctor can talk themselves out of washing their hands, we can talk ourselves out of anything. But when the Holy Spirit comes, or when he sends someone else, and that bacteria, that sin, that stuff that sits in our spiritual blind spot is revealed, we would be wise to take care of it. And the only way that we can take care of it is to go before God and get on our knees in front of Him and repent of that sin and ask Him that He would restore us. It's the only way to get clean. 
And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're here this morning, and you're saying, well, there's really no sin in my life. And you may be saying that because you think you're so righteous, and, you're, you, and you've done so many good things that there's really nothing bad there. Or maybe you're saying that uh, because you really just don't believe in, in the Bible, and you don't believe in God, and so you'd say there's no sin in my life. And listen, I wouldn't be doing my, my, my job, I wouldn't be doing what I'm, what I'm called to do if I didn't tell you this morning that you're wrong. All of us have sin in our life. All of us have violated God's law, no matter how holy and righteous we think we are. And we can dismiss it, and we can get defensive about it. The only thing that we can do that is the right thing to do is be defenseless before God and ask Him to cleanse us. Ask Him to restore us. I'm going to invite our worship team this morning up to the stage, and I'm going to invite those who are going to serve communion with me uh, to join me up front. We're going to end this service in a way that I think is quite appropriate for a sermon about repenting of sin, for a talk about realizing what David has done. We're going to end with communion and end Remembering what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf to forgive you and I of our sin. And so I'd ask you, would you pray with me? Would you pray with me as we, as we come to this table?